The scripture today is from 2 Peter chapter 3, which you can find on page 1855 in the Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestor died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Thanks, Sharon. All right, so some of you know that we're doing um, a memory verse for this series. It is a couple paragraphs, and we're going to do it in just a minute, and there's not going to be a cheat sheet on the screen. So I need to, um, I have to read it because if I get anything wrong, Bill Taylor, who is the elder um, memorized verse recitation coach, will pull me from the game. So I'm going to use the card a little bit just to make sure I don't miss, mess it up, but I do know it. Um, so if you, and if you don't have, so if you don't have this, you actually can look it up in the Bible. It's right in the Bible right in front of you anyway. Second Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 11. Um, but if you are, have been trying to memorize it, do, let's do as much as we can together, okay? Ready? His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you have these, possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not that it matters, but the first service kicked your butt. Just saying. Look at the last verse again for just a second or in your mind, right? You'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can see that Second Peter is winding up the books in its last chapter. And what the apostle says is that he is writing to them. And he, when he writes to them, the end of this passage in verse 11, what Sharon just read, was about 
a king, an eternal kingdom that is coming with the return of Christ. In fact, the, this passage, if you just listen to it generally at the first reading, it, it sounds like it's about the return of Jesus. And Christians have always believed in the return of Christ, his judgment of the world, his setting up of his full kingdom, and all the things that related to it. In fact, for most of the history of the world in uh, for most of the history of Christianity in North Africa and in Syria and in Iraq and in Iran and as far east as India. And now a lot of those churches have been destroyed since 680. But a lot of the churches in Europe, for example, have been preserved. And in a lot of these ancient churches, when you walk in, in one of the most prominent places in the church where every kid would have seen it since he, they were a toddler, there's this huge painted fresco of the judgment of Christ. Right? There's this. Most people re recognize the Sistine Chapel, right? <clears throat> but you can go through almost all the major churches that people like visit today. And one of the things that makes all the tourists uncomfortable is at some point the tour guide says, says and there is the judgment seat of Christ. <laughs> Where he will judge the living and the dead and all people who have ever lived according to his righteous— I mean, the tour guides don't say it this way, right? Here you'll see the judgment of Christ. Now let's keep moving, right? But actually, um, the return of Christ isn't really what the passage is about. The return of Christ is the best example of what the passage is about. Because the return of Christ and his judgment and his kingdom and all the things related to that is the doctrine that normal humanity hates the most. Right? Most of us want a philosophy that will order our world, help us think things through, maybe tell us things that are encouraging and helpful towards us. But one of the things we absolutely do not want from our philosophy, ideology, religion, or whatever is one that tells us what to do and what to think and how to act. That we do not want. Because for the most part, what we want to be with ourselves is permissive. Because if I don't know what's going to lead to my happiness, what do I need, what do I need in the most maximal way possible? Freedom, right? To be able to do whatever I want. In fact, so if you want a, a memorable and portable sentence to take home with you today, so you might write down this one. Um, we'll make sure I get it right. Hold on. Uh, we are always dismissive towards God when we want to be most permissive towards ourselves. We are always, as human beings, all human beings, every culture, every place, all times, are always the most dismissive towards God when we want to be the most permissive with ourselves. And one of the things that we want to be permissive with ourselves about is how we live. And you'll remember that at the end of this passage, when Peter gets done talking about the certain return of Christ, what is, he, what is the application line? Therefore, brothers, <laughs> since this will all happen— What's the next phrase? How should we live? That's what's terrifying. And so what this passage is really about, he starts the book and he, he starts the chapter and he says, listen, this is now the second book I've written to you, right? I've written so that you'll remember the gospel so as to stimulate you towards wholesome thinking, he says, right? And he says, but he says this, above all else, have you ever said that to somebody? Above all else, if you, for, if you remember one thing and you forget everything else I've ever told you, remember this one thing, right? Why would, you, why would you say that to somebody? It's, usually it's because you believe that you want them to remember that thing because it's more important than everything else, right? He says, above all else, what does he say? Jesus is coming back? Nope. Remember the knowledge of Christ? Nope, not actually. The thing that he says, above all else, you need to realize, he says this, in the last days, scoffers will come. That's what he says. In the last days, scoffers will come. Now, if you know something about the... the Theology of the New Testament. The last days are all the days between the ascension of Jesus and the return of Christ. Those are the last days. Okay? Because it's the last period. It's kind of like the third period in hockey. Okay? It's the last period. It's the last days. Okay? It's the last period. And in that time period, scoffers are going to come 
and they're going to scoff about all kinds of stuff. And he says, and he says, the reason you'll know that they're scoffers is because it will be evident if you understand what's going on that it's coming out of their evil desires. Right? It says that in verse 1, right? And he, and he says, you need to see and understand, and you need to understand the dynamic of scoffing because when you want to be permissive with yourself, for all humans, religious or irreligious, believers or unbelievers, for all human beings, what the flesh or our instinctual depravity is always going to lead us towards is to be dismissive towards God. Every time you want to be permissive with yourself, you're going to be tempted to be dismissive towards God. Everybody of every ideology at every time, no matter what you believe. And so he says, listen, what you need to understand is that scoffing will always miss what humility will see. Which, if you look in the, in the context of Second Peter, what humility looks like is remembering the gospel, right? And having certain doubts about yourself, right? If you believe you're a good person and you're perfectly intelligent and you don't like what you're being told, you're going to assume that you're thinking well and that thing is probably wrong and that's going to lead you to want to dismiss it. But if you think that what you're being told is really helpful or right or that the one telling it knows a heck of a lot more than you and has a heck of a lot more authority than you and you are kind of a bad person and really limited in how you think about things and prone to being dismissive, right? So I'm, I'm very analytical, okay? I think of myself that way. And so every time I get into a conversation with somebody where they criticize me, over like now 39 years— I have like built up this instinct to be like, shut up and listen. And don't pay attention to what you think isn't accurate. Because I have to do that. Because otherwise, what am I going to do? I'm going to pay attention to everything that's arguable in what they say, and I'm going to be dismissive about what somebody's saying to me, and then I won't benefit from the fact that they're probably saying something that could help me, especially if they're not just intending to be me. And the reason I do that is not because I'm Nick— the reason I do that is because Nick is a human, and that's how humans behave. Some people dismiss others emotionally, and they blow up, and they get angry, and they do all kinds of emotional things in order to be dismissive to other people. And other people are snide and intellectual, and they're, they, they like start dividing hairs and being like, well, that's not technically true. And well, you said always, and there was this one time I helped, you know, and like these sort of idiotic responses that are bound up in people trying to be something, right? And what Peter wants us to recognize is, is that the virtue of faith, which is necessary to take hold of the knowledge of Christ, is by definition an anti-scoffing, pro-humility disposition that we need to work on every single day. We are constantly forgetting the gospel. We need him to remind us. And we are constantly being permissive towards ourselves and dismissive towards God. And we need to have an incredibly humble, repentant, inquisitive, and curious attitude towards God. Assuming that all the things that Jesus says that seem the most idiotic are often the most profound if we will stop and think about them in a way that isn't dismissive. So if you follow—so what I want to do this morning is I just want to go through the text and work our way down through it. And the, part of the reason I'm doing that is because I want to demonstrate how we try to learn from Scripture, not just take something out of it and say whatever we want, but also because this is what is going to happen in the Luke class coming up. And I want to encourage you not—if you've never done a lot of Bible study, I want to encourage you not to be dismissive towards the value of sitting down with the Bible yourself— and studying and learning from it and profiting spiritually from it. And that if you haven't done a lot of it, sitting down with other people who you can work through it with is the best way to get going. And so part of it is I want you to, be, I want you to see how much can be seen in this passage and for you to realize that this book sits within three feet of you that can utterly transform your very being for your eternal good, but only if you will read and study it. And if you haven't, you probably could use a hand. And that's why we have classes. Okay? So, the way Peter starts his argument is he says, 
In the last days, people are going to come who are going to be scoffers, and they're going to be— scoffing is by nature dismissive, right? If somebody says, I don't believe in Jesus because I have these doubts, and they're kind of well-founded thought through doubts, this isn't the verse for them, okay? So 1 Peter and the book of Jude that comes right after are very close to each other in content. There's a verse in Jude where Jude says, Be merciful towards doubters. If people doubt, and they have real doubts, and they're not being dismissive, they just—there's roadblocks between them and belief. And they want to be humble, but they don't believe yet. The proper attitude is not, well, that's unbelief, scofferhead. That's, that's really not what we're supposed to do. What we're supposed to do is say, okay, what are your doubts? How do they form? Where are you with them? What's right? And to be merciful and, right? Now— but Peter says, one of the things that you can—one of the reasons you can tell that an argument is scoffing is when the argument is terrible. When somebody dismisses something, and, and they dismiss it on the basis of a terrible argument. An argument that is way beneath their intellect. Now, it's one thing if you think somebody makes an argument that's beneath your intellect, right? You might just be being a jerk, right? Or they might not be that bright or reasonable, right? But when they make an argument that's beneath their intellect— it's evident that the argument isn't being made in good faith. In fact, this is, a, this is a key to quick thinking and parenting, right? When your kid makes some argument about how, you know, you're just being mean to them and whatever, like, you got to be able to be like, no, no, no. If you really believe that, you would have done this, not that, right? If, if, you, were, if you were afraid you were, you'd been out too long, you know, that phone in your pocket, you would have sent me a text, but you didn't. And now you're saying that what you're really afraid of is I text you back and say, be home at this time. Your argument is beneath you. You're being dismissive, right? And that's essentially what Peter's doing with people who are scoffing about the resurrection of Jesus. He's like, listen, the weakness of your argument is what proves that you're being dismissive. And if you apply that to what Peter says in chapter one, right? If we don't see these things, we are nearsighted and nearsighted spiritually is blindness, right? So you can only believe an argument that is weak if you want to believe it's true, right? And that's essentially what Peter says is happening in this passage. He's saying people are coming forward and they're scoffing, and in their scoffing, they don't even really know what they're objecting to. They don't understand the argument well, or they don't want to, and so they're just being pedantic. They're not being clear-headed. And he says, here's what I've heard a million times, right? Peter's been all over the place. He's like, I hear this everywhere I go. Where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Right? So, in our day, it's been like 2,000 years. In his day, it had been like 35 years. Right? Jesus ascends into heaven. He says he's coming back. It's been 35 years! Right? I don't know if you've ever heard an older married couple being like, he's been this way for 35 years. That feels like a long time. And yet, this argument is really bad, as we'll get to in just a second. But the argument hasn't really changed in a relationship to the dismissiveness towards Christ's return. For example, um, there's a very well-known quote by Stephen Hawking. People like to quote it because of how smart Stephen Hawking is. Lots of people have said it, but they're like, Stephen Hawking, it's got to be right. Well, no. And so he said, right, there is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. See, right, he's an atheist. Naturalism assumes that we're just computers. We're just chemistry. And when chemistry breaks down, you just get less chemistry or different kind, right? And so he's like, so that is, at, at heaven or the afterlife is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Now, there's tons of stuff wrong with that argument. Right? It's equivocation, that is, it's using the word dark in two different ways that actually don't work together logically for the argument. Right? It proves too much. If you can psychologize believers and dismiss what they believe because of why you think they believe it, what can you do with unbelievers? The exact same thing, right? And so when John Lennox, who's a mathematician from Oxford, was asked what he thought of Hawking's quote, he said this, atheism is a fairy story for those afraid of the light, which if you are a quick little philosopher, you'll realize has all the same logical fallacies in it. But the reason Lennox says this is to demonstrate how unpersuasive, because it was full of fallacies, Hawking's statement is. It's the same kind of dismissiveness. Now, I want to stop for a second. Family talk. 
for, just for 90 seconds. High point family talk for 90 seconds. Some of you are annoyed that I'm talking about logical fallacies right now. Okay? And listen, what we need to recognize, and I try to put in my sermons, for those of you annoyed that I'm talking about logical fallacies right now, like feely and sentimental, emotive, human stuff, so that you will feel. Okay, I really try to do that because I realize that some of us need to think more clearly, and some of us need to feel more deeply. And as we grow in Christ, we should do both of those things, and some of us disproportionately more depending on where we're limited. I need to feel more deeply. But what we also need to recognize is this. We're a diverse family. You might not deal with thought issues very much. For you, it might be like you're just in a tough relationship, and you just want to choke your kids. And Nick, will you just give me a little comfort and a little help? And I'll try to get to that, you know, in October. But, but, I'm just kidding. I try to do that every week, right? But, but there's other people that are at the university, and they're in extremely secular fields, and they have people at work dismissing their faith all the time. And at, over time, not only do you need to know how to answer some of that stuff, it's very corrosive to you personally. Because you start walking around being like, I wonder if this is right, and it's not right. It's, it's like not even a good argument. But if you hear enough people talk that way, it feels like that might be right, because we're such relational creatures that other people just affect us, even if what they're saying isn't true. And so, I have to talk about all kinds of different things. And if I talk about something that confuses you, you please don't decide I'm trying to make you feel stupid and get angry at me. Please realize there's other brothers and sisters sitting next to you that come after me, come to me after sermons and say, that point you made was so helpful for me. And then there's sometimes where I tell stories that are ridiculously sentimental, and there's people crying all through the audience, and the engineers are like, oh my gosh, would you get back to the logic? And all this has to be included, so only at most 80% of a sermon will be for you. Hopefully at least 20% of it won't be for you. Because I'll be talking about experiences you know nothing about. I'll be do, doing logic or sentimentality. I'll be talking about things from different cultures. And I'll be, I want to do that because I want to be a church of different cultures and ethnicities. And I want to be international. And I, I mean, different ages, intergenerational. So please remember that when you hear sermons, okay? Okay, back to, back to Peter's argument. So the first argument he makes is that the argument doesn't even make sense on your own assumptions, right? Which is a great first argument to make. He says, first of all, it's intentional, right? You deliberately forget this. But he said, listen, most of what we all believe is this, right? Because he's mainly talking about Jews who are taunting Christians because Jesus hasn't returned yet. So these are all people who believe in the Old Testament, okay? So he's quoting now about creation and the flood, not because everybody in the whole world believed in it, but because people who are making this objections tended to be Jews. So he's quoting something both groups believe in. He says, listen, Jewish people believe, right? The people who are making fun of this idea believe that the world was created by water, and then the whole world was reset by killing all the people in the world with water, the only thing that's different about the return of the Christ is uh, return of Christ is the element. They believe that the world was created through something cataclysmic. It was reset by something cataclysmic. What's weird about it ending with something cataclysmic? If things have always been the same since your ancestors were alive, well, yeah, things generally stay the same until they don't. And there's just nothing inherently reasonable about this, right? Now, he goes on then to a much more important objection in terms of what God is like. And he says, it's not only true that on your own assumptions what you're saying is false, clearly, and you should already know it. That's why you deliberately forget. You're being dismissive and you're not being an honest doubter. But he says, in addition to that, he said, it totally misunderstands God. It totally misunderstands God. Because you see, it assumes that because of our limitations of time, that those limitations of time in any way affect him. Right? You see, every generation of Christians has always believed, secretly sometimes, that Jesus was going to come back before they died. Mainly because they didn't want to die. <laughs> and they thought the world was getting sufficiently bad enough that it was going to be something like Revelation and that Jesus will come back before I die. Okay, that has not worked for a number of generations of Christians now. It is extraordinarily likely you're going to die. Jesus isn't even interested in stopping you from dying. 
in this sense. The thing that is dealing with when, how much time Jesus waits is based on his reason for waiting, not the nature of time as it relates to him or us. And so Peter's like, listen, for, for God, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. Like, your concept of what, like, too long is, is completely irrelevant. He's not arguing that 35 years was too short a time to waste, and so wait, and so maybe 2,000 years is too long. He's saying the whole concept is flawed. That is, that time in any way relates to when Jesus should return. Because the thing that is keeping Jesus from returning is a particular outcome. He has a reason for why he waits. And what Peter says is that the reason for it is patience, right? He's not slow. He's patient. Because what he's waiting for is for people to come to repentance. Which brings a very ironic twist to the scoffing objection. Because who is actually keeping Jesus from returning if the reason he hasn't returned is because he's being patient with those who need to come to repentance? It's the scoffer by definition, right? So it's, it's a little bit like when, when somebody who's scoffing and hasn't repented to come to Jesus says, why hasn't Jesus come back? He should have come back by now. He's slow in keeping his promises. It's a little like when you're like— Nine-year-old is like, I really want to get to blah, 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 blah. When are we going to leave? We're late. And you're like, you're the only one who's not in the car. <laughs> right? Peter explicitly tells us, the Bible tells us in numerous places, that the reason why the return of Christ waits is that the gospel would go out to all nations and that God is waiting because of his patience for a maximal amount of people to come to him. That's why we wait. And that's why in the last verse, Peter could say what about us looking forward to the day of Christ? He said, and so, remember what it said? Speed its coming. Now, in what sense is the return of the ultimately sovereign God who hasn't told us when he would return or exactly the circumstances of his return, in what way can we be involved in speeding it? And of course, the only way is if in his patience he waits for those to come to repentance. If in some way we, with patience, help people come to repentance. Which is really helpful if we are not ourselves scoffers. Because remember, when he says patient with you, who is he primarily talking to? People reading the letter or hearing it who are allegedly at church or reading the Bible. He's not only being patient with people who are utterly irreligious, he's being patient with all of us because really all of us are scoffers. And what we're being called to is a godly life. Remember, the point of 1 Peter is not just believing in Jesus. Remember this. The point of 2 Peter is to tell us that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. The, the point of 2 Peter is not you can be saved point of the whole Bible is you can be saved. If you believe in Christ, he will save you, forgive you, regenerate you, give you his spirit, draw you to himself, lead you into a new future, transform you from the inside out. But the point of 2 Peter is, yes, and what that means is you're going to change. You're going to become godly. You're going to participate in God's divine nature in the person of his Holy Spirit, and you're going to escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires, and you are going to live in an extraordinarily different way. Right? And so God isn't just patient with scoffers who haven't come to Jesus. God is extraordinarily patient with Christians who haven't been nearly as affected by Jesus as we were meant to be. Which is one of the reasons the scoffers are still scoffing. Now, his next argument is to clarify what it means that the return of Christ is near. Because in the book of James and in the book of 1 Peter, the letter he wrote before this, he says that the return of Christ is near, right? And so you could see, like, if somebody says, like, hey, it's near, like, in 35 years past, you'd be like, that's kind of a long time for near, right? Even if it is the last period, right? And so he, he clarifies and tries to give us a more helpful way of understanding it. Because here's the thing. 
The concept of the imminence of Christ's return, the idea that Christ's return is near, means that it can happen at any moment. It doesn't mean it's going to happen soon. It means it is near and that it can happen at any moment. And so a really good metaphor for this is thieves. Right? When do thieves come? Who's thinking knows? Like the minute you're not looking, right? So Alexa and I live in a fairly nice neighborhood. And I'm one of those people that likes to do stuff in my garage. So I like to park my cars out of my garage. It just feels like wasting space in the summertime, right? And so um, there are apparently a band of teenagers that rove through a number of West Madison neighborhoods and just check every car that's not parked in a garage. And then they look and see if there's money in it, if it's unlocked, right? And so I'm absent-minded and I park in my driveway. You see where this is going, right? And so... Because I'm absent-minded, I keep cash in my car because sometimes I forget my phone, which is my wallet, which means I don't have any money, right? And so I like to keep 20 bucks in my car, which means they like coming to my car because I have money in it. It's parked outside, and I'm absent-minded. And guess when they always break into my car? The millisecond I'm not looking. That's when they do it. Every time. And of course, the police, they're like, yeah, it's quit leaving money in your car or lock it. Like, they don't do anything about it, right? So, like, this has gone on for two years. So, for, for two years in all these neighborhoods, right, we don't even know who these kids are. But they're, like, roving around. They don't, they don't, like, set my car on fire, which I appreciate. But they go into my car and they just still steal stuff, right? And they've stolen stuff at, like, 4 p.m.? At midnight? Like, I've gone in for dinner and been like, oh, I didn't lock my car. I go, it's still light. It's already been done. The money's gone. And I'm like, what? And ha- like, I've actually literally, I thought about waiting in my car under like a sleeping bag, <laughs> you know, with like money like taped to my wrist and be like, ah! <laughs> Just because it's so maddening because I can't nail these guys and I don't really want to spend the time trying. But they stole like $150 and like a $600 tablet out of my car. Like it matters to me, right? But see, that's the thing about thieves, right? You can't watch them, but they're watching you. (laughs) And so, the minute you're not looking, they're going to steal from you. Now, once you bring the metaphor with Jesus, it reverses morally. This is his creation, and we're trying to steal it from him. The moral thing kind of gets set aside, right? But the issue of like, the minute you're not looking, like, um, who got stolen from when they were expecting it? Wait, first, who's been stolen from? Who said something stolen from them? Who got stolen from when they were expecting it? Right? It ain't like a heist movie, right? It's not like, oh, they've got all these security systems and we're going to get by them all. That's not how people steal. Maybe some people steal like that. Everybody steals when you're an easy mark. Hey, I'll just put my wallet here while I change my pants. You know, like, I don't do that in public, by the way. <laughs> the, the, the point is, is what Peter's trying to tell us is this. He's saying, I know if, if you're trying to be permissive with yourself and give full reign to your evil desires so you can live however you want, I know the idea that Christ's return is near and hasn't happened yet in 35 years is, is a means by which you can pedantically dismiss it. Like, he's like, I get that. But you don't understand the point of why it's so important to realize that Christ's return might not come for 100,000 years, and yet you need to believe that it can happen because it can happen in six minutes. You see, Jesus wants every human person to know him and to recognize that Jesus very likely won't come before your death, so invest your life like you're going to live a longer life. Right? If you believe, if you knew Jesus was going to come in six minutes, would you finish college? Would you, like, move to a new job? Would you bother to do—would you pay your taxes, right? Probably not. I, uh, I almost said I wouldn't, but I probably would. Um, but I'd, 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 I'd dislike it even more. Um, right? So, so it's—God actually wants us to invest in our job as human beings— right? Living out the creation mandate and seeking to bring redemption wherever we can do it. He wants us to invest like we're going to be here for a while, but morally in terms of the kind of people we are and the character of our lives, he wants us to believe because it can be true because at some point it will be that Jesus could come in three minutes, right? It's getting closer. 
And that's how we're meant to live. We're meant to, I'm supposed to live my life like I might die at 88. And that I have four more decades, or almost five more decades, to invest in the work God wants me to do in this world. And he wants me to do it for all of those decades as though he might return in, in one minute. And you see, what Peter's saying is, if you think that way, you'll live beautifully. If you believe Jesus is a good king, and that all the things that he demands of you are all beautiful and good and truthful and right and wise and noble, right? You'll get to the end, you'll say, what kind of life should we live? And it will be a beautiful one. And here's, here's the thing that we need to understand. You think you don't need that motivation, and you're wrong. When you're fighting infidelity and pornography and hating your job and not knowing if you can live with this disease and how am I going to deal with this boss and how am I going to survive the last two weeks of winter and on and on and on and on and on. I mean, you name it. You feel it. You know what it is for you right this minute. You know what it's been in the past. You have no idea what it's going to be tomorrow. You need that motivation. And half the reason we do half the stuff we do that we shouldn't is because we don't really believe that. Because we live in a positivistic culture and we believe Jesus is our special friend and we hardly ever think of him as the returning king with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, filling valleys full of blood as deep as horses. And the God for whom, the God-man for whom children played on his lap and laughed, of whom it said, a broke, a twisted reed he wouldn't break all the way over, and a smoldering match he wouldn't blow out, that he's that gentle, is the same one who is painted on a thousand churches a thousand years old as the coming, reigning, ruling, judging king who punishes the wicked and who richly welcomes into his eternal kingdom all who receive the divine power he has given them freely in our knowledge of him who called us. Right? Now, one of the things that I think is difficult for all of us, both Christians and non-Christians, is that when we come to the, the question of how then should we live, it, it, we get really scared. And one of the reasons we're dismissive in the first place is because stepping into the authority of God is in- incredibly terrifying. Because who knows what he could ask you to do. He could ask you to stay married to somebody who's kind of a jerk for 25 years. He could ask you to, ask you to, to uh, join Eula in the Ukraine for the rest of your life. And do ministry there. He could ask you to give more of your income to somebody poor that's going to waste it. He could, I mean, he could do all kinds of stuff to you and in your life. With his, once his authority rules, there's nothing—listen, the God who's done everything for you, there's nothing he can't ask of you. And when you fully give him all authority as the reigning king as he deserves it, it's, it's terrifying— But it's also, it's not just terrifying in terms of our flesh. It's also terrifying in terms of how we think morally to protect ourselves. Because one of the ways Peter is saying we think morally is we have a certain evil desire and we want to be permissive with ourselves, And so we create a belief that we feel like we can defend and look like a good person defending it so we can keep this other, other belief. Let me give you an example of that. When I was in college in the 90s, there were a lot of guys on campus who were really into women's rights. Super into women's rights, right? And the reason they were into women's rights, I knew this because I lived near them, was that they really believed in women's power. And the reason they really believed in women's power is because it supported women's promiscuity. And they were really into women's promiscuity. And so they were really into women's power, and so they were really into women's rights. But when I watched them date those women and treat them like garbage, it was very evident that they weren't into loving human women. And humans do this constantly. And what happens when Jesus starts to come in and say, there's things I want to teach you, there's things you need to know, there's this thing called the knowledge of Christ and it's going to change you, we get terrified because we have all these beliefs that we hold, some of which are smoke screens for living according to our evil desires, others are things that we're really persuaded of that we think are super important, like women's rights, for example. And we're afraid that if we believe in Jesus, we're going to become this like, 
you know, gay-hating, closed-minded prepper for the zombie apocalypse or something, and that we're just so afraid what it's going to do to us, and we just really can't know. And you really do, you really can't know. But it usually isn't, doesn't go the way you think it will. And at the bottom of our fears, we don't give credit to the fears that we have because of the beliefs that are protecting our permissiveness of ourselves. We want to believe that all our views are these really great moral views, and that we're just being a good person by rejecting the stuff that Jesus wants to tell us. And we're not good people. And what it produces is a dismissiveness that keeps us from how Jesus would actually reteach us. Let me give you an example of this really quickly. Um, there's, a, there's a filmmaker named Cassie J, J-A-Y-E, and she did a film recently called The Red Pill. Um, she's only 30 years old, but she started making films, well, she started making films when she was a lot younger, and she, she this is how, how she described her own film career. She said, I was the hot girl that would die in the first 10 minutes of films. So she moved to LA when she was like 15, and they put her in all these horror films where she would like die in the first 10 minutes. And, but what she also found was a lot of producers and people were basically making sexual advances at her with kind of the promise that she might be able to get a better role if she was compliant. And that made a feminist out of her, because she was like, this is crazy. What's going on here and how I'm being treated, right? Um, and so the first movie she made was on women's reproductive rights and women's rights and so on. And it was that was her first film. And then um, she's always been interested in gender and sexuality, so her next film was about gay marriage. She's super pro-gay marriage. And so what she did is she did a documentary on all these gay families and how they couldn't get gay marriage licenses in their state and how she was so for that and how super important it was and so on, right? So she finishes her second movie. Both were pretty, pretty good-sized successes. And she's like, what am I going to do next? Because I'm 30 and I've used up all my creative juices, right? And so she, um, she heard of this crazy thing called the men's rights movement the men's rights movement. And she was like, she's a feminist, right? She's like, this is, these are insane people. So she's like, maybe if I hang out with some of these crazy people, I will like get an idea for my next movie about, right? And she's thinking, maybe I'll do like an expose on this men's rights group, right? So she starts going to these men's rights things and starts asking to interview them, right? And so she's like telling her camera crew, look, keep the camera rolling because they probably won't assault me or kill me if like you're getting it on videotape, okay? So like, just make sure we're always rolling, right? And then she starts talking with these guys and they're kind of polite and they're quoting studies she's never heard of, making arguments she's never heard of before, and she realizes that there's like this whole other bubble that she's not a part of. And she starts hearing things like that 78% of all global suicides are men. That in America, if you're a man in a custody battle with your wife, there's an 80% chance your wife is going to get custody of your kids. And the only evidence that's in the court is what she says about you and what you say about her. Right? That, um, Something like 95% of, of humans who die doing their vocation are men. Now, that's partly because most men are, most soldiers are men. But even if you take out soldier deaths, it's still much higher than women because, yes, there are more men CEOs than women. There's also more men cl climbing into little sewage ducts than women. Um, yes, there are fewer women getting graduate degrees in physics, but almost two-thirds of graduate degrees awarded in biology, which last I knew was a science are awarded to women. Women are more interested in biology than physics for some reason. And so she began to learn all this stuff, and she's kind of like, what? And it's okay, so she was terrified. In fact, there's certain clips where she talks about, like, emotionally what's happening inside of her, and she's, like, journaling this whole time that she's terrified, because what she, here's what she's afraid of. She's afraid that if she grants any of this stuff, she'll stop being a feminist. She'll, like, become against women's rights or something. And it, it doesn't occur to her that you can actually be for both men's rights, and women's rights. And by not being dismissive and immersing herself for three years in this other community, she actually gets this view where she would say she's totally for women's rights. She's actually for men's rights in a way she never thought she would be. And she actually said, there was a point where I realized that being for women's rights and being a feminist were different things and I'm no longer a feminist. But I'm still, but she's still super for all kinds of things that I would totally disagree with. Let me give you an example of this in this passage. In this passage, there's a section that says, right there, right? It says, but in the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare, right? There's another part of the passage that says like that the, like the heavens will all melt away, right? Now, if, if you're, like, you're like a good Madisonian, maybe younger person, and you hear that, what are you afraid, like if you believe that, if you totally believe that about the end of the world, 
what terrifying implication might people take from that socially that you're afraid of? Right? An anti-environmental one, right? Like if the world's just all going to burn, what does it really matter what we do to it? Right? There's a number of Christian preachers out here who have looked at passages that, that seem like there's more continuity in the world, that God's going to like remake it, and they're like, well, he's probably just going to kind of like refurbish it a little bit. So basically the, the world that is in heaven is going to be basically this one here, so we better take care of it. It's just not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that it is all going to burn. But it teaches it in a way that if you derive from that, that how we treat the world doesn't matter, you're wrong. Right? The, the Bible starts with that God engages in this creative work of six days, and he creates a six-day, one-day work and rest week. He works to make all of creation. He gives that creation to the humans to take dominion over and to fill, and he says, go and do this work that I've done, the work of a creator and the work of a craftsman. There's not an inkling of any of, the, in any of that that we're supposed to destroy the thing we're supposed to be stewards over. You don't, you don't need to believe something the Bible doesn't teach about the environment in order to believe that the environment's important. But it's very easy if, you're, if you don't want to be a Christian to believe that Christians are anti-environmentalists, to realize that to be a good person you should care about the environment, and therefore you don't need to consider what Jesus says about his glory and his reign and his kingdom, which also means you could probably sleep with whoever you want to. And our, like, cross-wovenness of what is a noble belief about something that's really right, like believing that we should take care of the environment, believing that women should be treated with the rights they deserve, believing that men should be treated with the rights they deserve, all that kind of stuff, and how that's actually interwoven to stuff that we believe that protects things that we want to believe so that we can be permissive with ourselves is a very twisted web that we weave inside of ourselves. But if, but if we recognize that we're scoffing at some point, if we recognize that Jesus is a good king, then if he rearranges your views about certain things, here's what's probably going to happen. You're still going to believe in a lot of the things that you know really are moral truths, but they're going to be related to something else and they're going to be left a lot different than you thought. And the end is going to be you can't protect yourself from the permissiveness you want to give yourself and you're still going to believe in the moral view. <laughs> So, for example, if I could lead one of my old 1995 frat brothers to Christ, when we were done, he would still believe in women's rights and women's power, right? And he wouldn't encourage his girlfriend to dip into promiscuous sex with him, and he would treat her with respect and honor, and if he wanted to stay with her, and if he wanted to be intimate with her, he would marry her and create a family and stay with her until one of them dies. He would absolutely believe in women's rights, and he would learn how to be a man, and he would believe all of it. Here's the thing he wouldn't get was the permissiveness he wanted to feed his sinful nature with. Because that's the only thing that Jesus really wants to cut away. If we recognize that, once you see that, and once we stop using our moral ideologies to defend ourselves from the authority of Jesus— he will come and he will reteach us how to see the world. He will reteach us how to see more than one thing together at one time. He will show us where we're lying to ourselves and deliberately forgetting that which we must remember. And he will face us with the question, if we realize that Jesus can come back in 10 minutes, but we need to live our whole life like he's not going to come back till after we're dead, we will invest. And yet at this moment, we'll ask ourselves the question, what kind of people ought we to be? And once you ask yourself the question, once we stop being dismissive and ask the humble question of, okay, this is who Jesus is, what kind of person should I be? The answer is going to be really straightforward. We ought to live godly lives. We ought to look forward to the day of his coming. It's a really great, great way to figure out if you're actually a Christian, if you go to church. If Jesus was coming back in five minutes, how would you feel? If you would feel the same as the Apostle John, even so, come Lord Jesus, the sooner the better. Or like Paul, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Or if you'd be like, yeah, I wanted to play another round of golf this spring. You're not a Christian. Okay? Come talk to me after. I want to talk to you. Right? 
we would look for his coming. We would desire his coming, right? Now, you might be uncomfortable with it, but you'll desire it on a certain level. You'll at least be conflicted about it. And then third is, we would, we'll live in such a way as to speed his coming, right? We'll, we'll, we'll want to help. We'll want to ourselves stop being scoffers. We'll want to ourselves creating a twisted web of fake moral views so that we can be dismissive towards God and permissive towards ourselves. We'll find ourselves more and more under the authority of Jesus, taking him at his word, doing what he says, and learning through experience how it's wise, and we aren't. And we'll also go to our neighbors who don't believe our doubters or our scoffers, and we'll help them come to repentance and so speed the day of his coming. Because he waits, because he's patient. Above all else, remember that in the last days there will be scoffers. And the person who is most prone to be a scoffer is me and you. And we need to help people who aren't believers not be scoffers. And the first step is for us not to be scoffers. Because we're not just serious about being saved and accepting Jesus— but we're also serious about what Peter is serious about, that he's given us everything we need to live a life of godliness. Ultimately, that is the only remedy for a scoffing world. A godly church. A Christian that looks and acts like Christ. And nothing produces scoffing so much as the alternative. Somebody who says they're a Christian and doesn't live a godly life and lives it publicly. Father, would you please help us to be a people who remember that we're always going to be in the presence of scoffing because we're always going to be in the presence of being dismissive towards you because we want to be permissive towards ourselves. Would you help us to, to look at ourselves first? Let, let humility point us towards the plank in our own eye before we look at the speck in our brother's eye like Jesus said in Matthew 7. Let us judge each other in the positive sense of spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. Help us to strive graciously and not legalistically, recognizing that the only way we can live a godly life is through your power that you have given us, through your promises that come from your glory and goodness so that we can participate in your divine nature and we change as people so that as we change, we would grow in humility and not in pride and self-righteousness. And please do it in us so that we can grow in virtue and so we won't be ineffective or unproductive in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Because in the end, we want to live every moment like you might return now, even though we invest for future decades. Because our great desire is not only that we would receive a rich welcome into your eternal kingdom, but that our neighbors who are scoffers or doubters, that we would be part of them receiving that rich welcome as well. Please give us a heart for the things you have a heart for. We look to your coming, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.